0: Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello, this is Daphne, and I'm glad to be reading the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, February 15th with you. We will start with the weather. Today, sun giving way to clouds, high of 38. Tonight, not as cold, snow and rain early, up to 1 inch, low of 31. Friday, windy in the morning, mostly sunny, high of 39, low of 21. Saturday, a bit of snow and rain in the afternoon, high of 34, low of 18. Sunday, sunshine and patchy clouds. High of 36, low of 26, and Monday, plenty of sunshine, and a high of 41, low of 28. And folks, today the sun rose at 6.37 a.m. and sets at 5.14, which gives us 10 hours and 37 minutes of daylight. And on to the lottery for the numbers game. Midday drawing yesterday, February 14th, the numbers are 2, 6, 9, and 7. Again, midday drawing, February 14th, 2, 6, 9, and 7. The evening drawing, 4, 7, 6, and 5. Again, for the numbers game drawn yesterday, February the 14th, the numbers are 4, 7, 6, and 5. For Mass Cash, drawn yesterday the 14th, the numbers are 5, 7, 20, 30, 33. Again, for Mass Cash, drawn February the 14th, the numbers are 5, 7, 20, 30, and 33. For Powerball, drawn yesterday the 14th, the numbers are 1, 4, 45, 47, 67, and the Powerball is 18. Again, Powerball drawn yesterday, February the 14th. The numbers are 1, 4, 45, 47, 67, and the Powerball of 18. For Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, February 13th, the numbers are 1, 3, 19, 25, 58, And the Mega Ball is 20. Again, for Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, February the 13th, the numbers are 1, 3, 19, 25, 58, and the Mega Ball is 20. For Mega Bucks, drawn yesterday, the numbers are 1, 3, 14, 15, 32, and 37. Again, Megabucks, drawn yesterday, February the 14th. The numbers are 1, 3, 14, 15, 32, and 37. And Lucky for Life, drawn Wednesday, February the 14th. The numbers are 4, 7, 39, 42, 46, and the lucky ball is 4. And on to the news. The top story for the Cape Cod Times on February the 15th is about our storm we just lived through. The the uh, title of this article is Fast-Moving Storm Brings Snow and Power Outages, Erosion Also Present as Cape is Slammed. And this article is by Eric Williams. There are two photographs. One is of utility poles. And the the caption is "Snow-coated utility lines sag on Wednesday along Salt Marsh Road in East Sandwich, as an electric line crew works to restore power to the beachfront area." And then there's another uh, photograph of the beach, and it shows Andrew and Elizabeth Catano surveying damage on Wednesday due to a newly the damage to a newly reinforced protective dune at Town Neck Beach in Sandwich. To the article, Tuesday's storm was a fast-moving smack of wind and snow on Cape Cod that dumped about eight inches of the white stuff in some areas and caused thousands of power outages. During the afternoon height of the storm, near whiteout conditions made road travel perilous. On the bright side, the quick pace of the storm seemed to lessen the toll of flooding and erosion around the area. Quote, I really think we dodged a bullet, close quote, said David DeCanto, director of the Sandwich Natural Resources Department. Quote, we got a little bit of flooding and a little bit of erosion. Close quote. On Wednesday, a newly reinforced protective dune at Town Neck Beach in Sandwich was eroded after high tide. DeCanto said a little wear and tear was observed at the town's usual trouble spots, including the Town Neck Beach area, but the fast-moving storm didn't linger over multiple tide cycles, which would have exacerbated erosion and flooding damage. Quote, we really didn't get a storm surge, said DeCanto. Quote, it wasn't all that bad, said Ted Keene, director of the Coastal Resources Department in Chatham, who added that the storm's effects were less significant than those brought by recent bad weather. In an email to the Cape Cod Times, Lindsay French, visual information specialist at the Cape Cod National Seashore, reported that park field staff had been out and about on Wednesday morning to see what the storm had wrought. Quote, the Marconi Beach stairs survived and there is no major damage or erosion to report, wrote French happy to escape, relatively unscathed, Close quote. While Cape Cod received a good-sized serving of snow, the largest reported snowfall, 15.5 inches, occurred in the Farmington, Connecticut area. According to the National Weather Service, observers, spotters, and members of the public around Barnstable County reported these preliminary snow totals from Tuesday's storm. Forestdale, inches. Sandwich, 8.0 inches. East Dennis, 8.0 inches. Brewster, 7.5 inches. Marsden Mills, 7.0 inches. East Falmouth, 6.2 inches. Eastham 6.0 inches. Barnstable, 5.8 inches. Mashpee, 4.5 inches. Chatham 4.5 inches and East Harwich 4.0 inches. The storm's most significant effect on Cape Cod may have been power outages. Shortly after 8 p.m. on Tuesday, Eversource reported that more than 20,000 Cape customers were without power. By about 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, that number had been whittled down to about 1,300 Cape customers without power, with more than 300 customers without power in Falmouth. In an email to the Cape Cod Times, Eversource spokesperson Priscilla Race wrote that the remaining outages in eastern Massachusetts, quote, are clustered on Cape Cod and Martha's Vineyard, and we are working to substantially complete storm restoration by 6 p.m. Wednesday, with most customers restored sooner, close quote. According to Ress, the vast majority of outages were caused by, quote, snow and wind, bringing trees and limbs down onto the electrical system, causing damage, close quote. Looking ahead at the weather picture, Cape Cod could see a small amount of fluffy snow during the Thursday night, Friday morning time frame, according to the National Weather Service, with a chance of a similar event on Saturday. Continuing with front-page news for the Cape Cod Time, this article is Riverview Can Expand Programs After Buying Golf Course, reported by Zane Razak. Riverview School, a private East sandwich school for students with disabilities, is under contract to purchase the 40-acre Twin Brooks Golf Course on Scudder Avenue in Hyannis. The purchase stops a proposed plan to build an apartment complex on the land. Head of school, Stuart Miller, said Riverview School had searched for land for about two years. The independent coeducational boarding day school serves students aged 11 to 21 with various learning challenges, such as autism, Down syndrome, and intellectual disabilities. Buying the property will allow the school to expand its offerings to students beyond 22 years old, said Miller. We really, quote, we really changed the whole trajectory of lives here, and the friendships that the students form and belonging to this community is really life-changing, he said. We want to make sure that we can extend our programming beyond that kind of arbitrary age cutoff, close quote. Meanwhile, plans to turn the golf course into a 312-unit apartment complex are now dead. The decision to terminate the agreement for real estate developer Cortera Multifamily Communities to buy the property was mutual, said Chuck Carey of Carey Commercial, who represented the sellers. Carey named, quote, NIMBY Neighbor Opposition as the reason, using the acronym for Not In My Backyard. <clears throat> no point in calling it otherwise, said Carey. It was totally disingenuous outcry based on the fact that some of those people have a house in the area and just enjoy the fact that they have a free, grassy, backyard golf course. Close quote. Twin Brooks Golf Course in Hyannis is owned by TFG Hyannis Hospitality, LLC, according to the assessor's office. Corterra wanted to build three, 13 three-story apartment buildings within walking distance of Main Street, with 13 percent of the apartments set aside for affordable housing. The Cape Cod Commission had signed off on the plan, but the project, known as Emblem Hyannis, drew heavy opposition from local residents, including the group Save Twin Brooks, which wanted to preserve the site and lodged a legal challenge in Barnstable Superior Court, along with several other plaintiffs. Dan Lee, Cortera Northeast Division President, could not be reached for comment. Riverview School, quote, can only begin to dream at this point, said Miller, adding that no fully formed comprehensive programs have been prepared yet. Quote, we are pleased and heartened that this property now appears to be going to a long-standing Cape institution that has many of the same values that we have, said John Ail, a retired lawyer and Save Twin Brooks volunteer. Save Twin Brooks now looks forward to collaborating with the new owner to continue efforts to preserve the site and restore the degraded estuary, said Ail. The school has begun land planning work to determine how the property can best be used to further its expanded mission, said Miller, and has reached out to Save Twin Brooks, Barnstable Land Trust, and town officials to understand their hopes and concerns for the parcel. The school received its largest philanthropic donation from an anonymous donor that will allow it to purchase the land. Both Carey and Miller said they could not divulge the price at this time. The property is set to close on March 13th, said Miller, at which point they'd be free to discuss those details. Founded in 1957, Riverview has an East Sandwich campus on Route 6A that contains a cafe and a thrift store as public-facing businesses where students can work and interact with the community as well as a couple of dormitories off the proper campus. All combined, it totals about 20 acres, said Miller. Quote, We love our campus in each sandwich, and we have absolutely no plans to do anything different there. We've just reached the point where we cannot further develop it, close quote, said Miller. The school has about 200 students and employs about 225 adults. It has three programs— middle school, high school, and grow, getting ready for the outside world. About 60% of the students are from Massachusetts. Carey called the new agreement with Riverview a, quote, wonderful solution and noted that the Dover Amendment exempts educational uses from certain zoning restrictions. The Dover Amendment, originally adopted in 1950, Mandates that proposed religious and education land uses be given more favorable treatment than other proposed uses, such as residential, commercial, or industrial, under local zoning ordinances and bylaws, according to the Massachusetts Interlocal Insurance Association, an interlocal service of the Massachusetts Municipal Association. Quote, it's still a benefit to the town, said Carey. More news from the front page of the Cape Cod Times. This article is entitled, Insurers, Full Coverage for Pregnancy Would Raise Premiums. This is reported by Kinga Burundi for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, part of the USA Today Network. Having a baby in Massachusetts may not require prospective parents to meet insurance deductibles or shell out copays if a bill eyed favorably by the Joint Committee of Financial Services makes it through the next steps needed for it to arrive on the governor's desk. Quote, This bill removes barriers from the continuum of pregnancy-related medical care, ensuring that all medical care related to pregnancy can be provided free of all deductibles, copays, and cost-sharing, said Cindy R- Senator Cindy Friedman, Democrat from Arlington, the bill's sponsor. Quote, we did this for Mass Health, the state program that covers Medicare, Medicaid, and the Children's Health Insurance Program. I'm asking we do this for all commercial pr- payers to ensure that people get needed care at important times in the developmental cycles. Close quote. <clears throat> The bill as it is written does not dictate what is or is not covered by insurance policies. It just states that there be no cost sharing of any kind for the services. It would include all private fully funded insurance plans and insurance provided through the state for state and municipal provided through the state for state and municipal employees. It is already a benefit for residents insured through MassHealth. During the last legislative session, state lawmakers made sure that abortion and abortion care services were fully covered by health insurers and abolished the practice of meeting deductibles, charging copays, or otherwise requesting patients foot part of the bill. That law was in reaction to the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2022. In the last session... With, Sorry, this is the beginning of a quotation. In the last session, with the repeal of Roe, the Senate came to have a greater awareness of how best to support pregnant people and the need for maternal health care, said Senator Jamie Eldridge, Democrat from Marlboro, one of the co-sponsors of the bill. It's not just a recognition of reproductive rights, but a recognition that the health care system is private for profit. The costs for pregnancy is borne by families and is a burden on the state's poorer residents and people of color. Close quote. Quote, I'm proud to co sponsor this bill, which puts the health of pregnant people first, said Senator Rebecca Rausch, Democrat for Needham in a prepared statement. There should never be a question, hesitation or concern about accessing maternal health care. And yet that is the circumstance for too many people for whom that routine and necessary care is financially out of reach. Whether the decision is to start a family, grow a family, or end a pregnancy, pregnancy care must be affordable and accessible to all Bay Staters, close quote. Supporters said financial considerations prompt many Massachusetts residents to opt for insurance coverage that has lower monthly premium costs and higher deductibles, meaning patients have to pay a certain amount for covered services out of pocket before the insurance kicks in. Quote, More than 1.7 million Massachusetts residents have opted for a low-cost, high-deductible health care plan, said Claire Taluni of Reproductive Equity Now at a hearing on the bill held in May. The number of residents opting for these low cost plans has risen from 14% to 43% of people paying for private, commercial market insurers since 2013. Those high deductible thresholds and copays serve to discourage pregnant people from seeking necessary pregnancy related medical care, or any medical care, Friedman said adding that the lack of services could have serious health consequences for the mothers and their children. In her testimony, the senator quoted a Center for Health Information and Analysis review of the proposal that predicted a minuscule increase of premiums across the board to lie between 0.23% and 0.32%. It's looking like a very small impact to the cost of the premiums. Friedman said. However, the Massachusetts Association of Health Plans President and CEO Laura Pellegrini said the organization and its members are quote deeply concerned about efforts to eliminate consumer cost sharing, whether for a particular drug or a broad range of services. Close quote. The organization anticipates increased premiums for covered individuals in the state. Without the ability to share costs with patients, Pellegrini predicted a $237 million increase in premium costs over five years. Quote, if cost sharing is eliminated for one surface, the actuarial value of the insurance product changes, increasing the overall premium, Pellegrino said in a prepared statement. She said members work diligently to keep premiums and cost sharing as low as possible. In the case of pregnancy and childbirth, health plans provide coverage for routine prenatal care, including office visits without cost sharing, as well as preventive services as outlined in federal guidance, including no-cost depression and anxiety screenings and interventions, gestational diabetes screenings and healthy weight counseling, screenings for hypertension and sexually transmitted infections, and breastfeeding interventions for postpartum women. Pellegrini said. Statistically, lower-income households pay more of their total incomes for health care costs, including insurance premiums, than higher-income households, according to Friedman HealthCare in a report released in 2017 that provided a view of price variations between insurance providers. A Massachusetts family of three with a $60,000 household income paid 30% of that for health care costs. The percentage of income dedicated to health care decreased as earnings increased. Households with an income of $120,000 spent 18% of it on health care costs, according to the report. Cost-sharing demands, coupled with a low income, can be a prohibitive obstacle to accessing pregnancy care. Quote, women should not face the choice of going into debt for basic reproductive services or putting food on the table, said Judith Hirschfield Bartek of Falmouth, who spoke in favor of the bill in May. Quote, health care is a right for all women, not a privilege reserved for. Only for those who can afford it. Close quote. Jan Soma, with the Massachusetts chapter of the League of Women Voters, pointed out that 97% of women in Massachusetts are covered by health insurance, yet many still have challenges affording reproductive health care. Lower income women are least able to afford the, the extra costs, Soma said. Adding that on average, Massachusetts women pay about $4,500 for pregnancy care, funds that could better be dedicated to the cost of rearing the child rather than birthing it. One woman, Katie Ford, spoke of the financial burden she faced when she became pregnant with mono dye twins, monochorionic diamniotic. The fetuses share a placenta but each has their own amniotic sac, a rare pregnancy that enhances the potential for complications. Weekly visits for scans were the norm, each requiring a copay and out-of-pocket costs that were random, inconsistent, and, quote, always high, close quote. Changes in insurance, including a renewal, meant that she failed to meet her deductible while she was pregnant and then had the deductible reapplied on the policy renewal. Quote, it was the same pregnancy, Ford said. Throughout her pregnancy, Ford said, rather than focus on her condition and the coming leap into parenthood, she fretted about whether costs incurred were covered by insurance. Quote, it took us three years to pay off the cost of maternity care. Ford said, families should not have to risk bankruptcy to have a child. Close quote. Our last front page article from the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, February the 15th, is entitled Democrat Wins New York Seat Santos Had Held. And this is reported by Marina Pitofsky, Sudishka Kochi, Ken Tran, Savannah Kuchar, and Rachel Looker Looker for the USA Today. In a local race with national implications, Democrats took back the congressional seat held briefly by disgraced Republican George Santos. Voters in New York's 3rd Congressional District chose former U.S. Representative Tom Suozzi in a special election Tuesday night over Nassau County legislator, Mazi Philip. The win is a big boost for Democrats in the House. Republicans were fighting to keep their razor-thin majority. Suozo's win in the Long Island area district shifts power in the lower chamber towards Democrats. With the party breakdown in the House moving to 219 to 213, House Republicans will soon have even less breathing room to pass partisan legislation. They can afford only two defections if they want to pass anything without Democratic support. Santos last year became just the sixth lawmaker to be expelled from the House in the country's history. He faces a multitude of federal charges, including money laundering, wire fraud, identity theft, credit card fraud, and lying to Congress. He told CNN he would stay home Tuesday. Quote, There's two Democrats on the ballot, and the option is do we get a Democrat or a democrat republican light version of a Democrat, Santos said. Philip is technically still registered as a Democrat in New York, but is serving as a Republican, and said her views were more in line with those of the Republican Party. Quote, I will not bring myself to vote for a registered Democrat, per- Democrat, period, Santos said. It's just against what I believe in. There was no primary for the bellwether election. Instead, the parties chose their nominees. Swozy represented the district for three terms before running an unsuccessful gubernatorial campaign in 2022. County and state Democratic chairs said in a statement that he has, quote, a proven record of fighting for his constituents, fighting to safeguard our suburban way of life here on Long Island and Queens, and always advocating for sensible solutions to the real challenges affecting everyday average Americans, close quote. Pilip, 44, is an Ethiopian-born legislator, who fled to Israel as a child during Operation Solomon, a 1991 Israeli military operation that brought thousands of Ethiopian Jews to Israel, according to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. She served as a paratrooper in the Israeli Defense Forces. In the campaign's lone debate, Swozi pressed Philip on abortion, asking repeatedly, You're pro-choice? Pillip pushed back angrily, then eventually conceded, quote, I am pro-life, adding, it's a personal decision, close quote. Various New York Republican lawmakers came out for Pillip Monday night, including Representative Elise Stefanik, Republican of New York. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat of New York, joined Swosey on the stage at a campaign event this month. However, both candidates distanced themselves from their party leaders. Nonetheless, Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley used the special election as another opportunity to swipe at her competitor, former President Donald Trump. Quote, everything that he is involved with with Republicans, we lose, Haley told CNN, pointing to a string of recent Republican electoral losses. It's about the middle of our broadcast today, and so we turn to the obituaries. There are three today. The first is for Meredith Ann Falaci. Meredith Ann Falaci passed away peacefully at the age of 87 on February 3rd, lovingly surrounded by family in Hyannis. Meredith grew up in Sagamore to parents Andrew Winning Muir and mother Elsie Helen Niska Muir. She was the loving wife of late husband Frank John Falacci, whom she met on Cape Cod when he was working as a journalist. She is survived by her three children, Nicholas Falacci, John Falacci, and daughter Francesca Falacci, as well as three grandchildren, Andrew, Ben, and Madeline, her two sisters, Noelle and Andrea, and nieces and nephews. Meredith graduated from Bourne High School, where she was a star basketball player. She met her future husband on Cape Cod, where he was working as a journalist, and went on to founding local newspaper, the Cape Cod News, where she worked alongside him for many years. Later, she would go on to be an executive assistant at OSHA in the Boston regional office, where she thrived creating a department newsletter and befriending her many coworkers. She and Frank relocated to the North End in Boston and enjoyed local sports and politics, as well as t- traveling to Italy and Mexico. Meredith was a devoted mother to her children, and later grandmother and later grandmother, and took great pride and joy in their company and accomplishments. In her work, she was a perfectionist and generous to a fault with her family and friends. Full of life, she touched many with her radiant smile, elegant style, and strong determination of spirit. She enjoyed laughter, family, and mostly traveling with her husband. Meredith made all who surrounded her feel very loved and cared for. A celebration of life will be held at a future date. Our next obituary is for Charles J. Humphreys. Charles J. Humphreys, 97, of Marsden Mills, Massachusetts, passed away on February 7th. Born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in 1926, to Frank and Marie Humphreys, he was the beloved husband of the late Elaine Humphreys Kadamo for 66 years. Affectionately known as Chuck, he had a lifelong passion for fishing, photography, and dogs. He cherished spending time with family and friends across the U.S. A proud World War II veteran, he served in the Army Air Corps. He also lent his voice to the Chanter Choir as a member of the Shriners International Organization, enriching the community with his singing. He retired after dedicating years of service to dresser industries. Charles is survived by his two sons, John Humphreys and his wife, Lynn Humphreys, of Marsden Mills, and Jeff Humphreys and his wife, Sharon Humphreys, of Richmond Hill, Georgia, along with five grandchildren, Michelle, Danny, Lauren, Nicole, and Kristen McLaughlin Humphreys, and her husband, Corey McLaughlin. He will be dearly missed and remembered fondly by all who knew him. Funeral Arrangements under the direction of Chapman Funerals and Cremations, Marsden Mills. Our last obituary for today is for Jeffrey Richard Sadowski. Jeffrey Richard Sadowski, aged 47, passed away on February 8, 2024, in McLean, Virginia. He was the husband of Anastasia Sadowski. Born in Plymouth, Mass., he was active in all sports growing up. His love had no bounds for basketball, especially the Ketuit Kettleers of the Cape Cod Baseball League and the Boston Red Sox. He graduated from Northeastern University with honors, where he was an editor of the Northeastern News, the student newspaper. Post-graduation, he worked in the Boston office of Congressman Edward J. Markey, who at the time was the United States Representative for Massachusetts' 7th Congressional District. He was a speechwriter, researcher, and pollster for Congressman Markey's reelection campaigns. He left Congressman Markey's office in 2001, two months before the attacks on September 11th, and joined the State Department. As a result, his work took him across the globe, his most favorite being Miami and South America. He thoroughly loved his career. Besides his wife, he is survived by father, his father, Richard, and brother, Todd. His mother, Janice, passed away in 2004. Services are private. Memorial donations may be made to the charity of one's choice. Our next article from the Cape Cod Times is entitled, Judge Grills Massachusetts State Troopers Over Illegal Audio Recording. And this is reported by Brad Petreshin from the Wo- Worcester Telegram and Gazette. More than 60 Massachusetts state troopers made covert investigative reporting, recordings in recent years that were never turned over to prosecutors and in many cases violated the state's wiretapping law. Documents obtained by the Telegram and Gazette show the recordings, which mostly appear to have been made during drug investigations, were made in more than 250 criminal cases, the documents show, including cases brought by local, state, and federal prosecutors. Quote, that were even here, frankly, is shocking to me. Christopher P. Lecanto, First Justice of the Fitchburg District Court, said during a recent court hearing on the recordings in which he asked pointed questions of current and former troopers under oath. It was while discussing a Fitchburg drug case with an undercover state police detective in 2023 that local prosecutors first learned troopers had made but failed to disclose audio and video recordings of drug purchases. Prosecutors are legally bound to provide defendants with any evidence of their statements, and a failure to do so could open the door to court challenges or civil lawsuits that could threaten convictions or lead to monetary damages. As the Telegram and Gazette reported last year, Worcester County District Attorney Joseph D. Early Jr.'s office, after learning of the undercover officer's recordings, informed members of the defense bar, and asked state police for more information about what happened. Since that time, state police conducted an audit that found that more than 60 troopers made recordings that they never disclosed to prosecutors in more than 260 cases dating to at least 2013, a June 2023 state police memorandum shows. Quote, many recordings were made outside of legal parameters governing surreptitious audio recordings in Massachusetts, state police wrote in a training document summarizing lessons learned from the probe. The review shows that state police never have never had a policy regarding covert audio recordings and that the department, despite acquiring technology in recent years that allowed officers to secretly make recordings on their smartphones, never trained officers in how to use it. This is a failure of the state police in terms of giving out equipment and not providing training, Lakanto remarked at one point after hearing testimony from multiple troopers. Lakanto has conducted three hearings since November in which he has questioned troopers under oath in connection with requests from defendants for new trials. Audio the TNG reviewed of the hearings show Lakanto made clear his frustration with the answers troopers as well as state police lawyers have provided to his questions. The state police, which the documents show have since created a a policy on the use of covert audio recordings and required training, did not return a set of questions sent to a spokesman Monday. Among the queries was whether the department expects any high-profile cases to potentially be impacted by the undisclosed recordings. According to a list of docket numbers of potentially impacted cases contained in the police memorandum, undisclosed recordings were made in cases in superior courts throughout the state, as well as more than a dozen cases in federal court. One of the cases listed is that of Vincent Fats Caruso, a Salem man sentenced to more than 20 years in federal prison in June 2022. The Office of U.S. Attorney attorney for Massachusetts, Joshua S. Levy, which in a news release described Caruso as a crip-associated leader of a, quote, violent fentanyl pill trafficking organization, close quote, declined a request for information. Federal law is less stringent than Massachusetts law on secret recordings. It only requires one person's consent to the recording, so it was not immediately clear whether any federal case could be impacted. There did not seem there did not appear to be any docket entries in Caruso's case indicating his defense had raised the issue since his conviction. The recordings under scrutiny, scrutiny are connected to a motorola based Spart foam application. call you the law enforcement across the country that law enforcement across the country use during drug investigations. The application, which supplants use of the more dangerous physical wires police formerly used, allows officers to use their phones as covert recording devices, marketing materials show. Testimony in Lakanto's court indicates that the company defaults the application to audio and, depending on the app, Video record the interactions. Marketing materials show the company has touted the technology in assisting in prosecutions. But Massachusetts law, unlike most other states, makes covert recordings illegal under its wiretapping law and, with limited exceptions for officer state safety, requires police to get warrants before recording undercover operations. Troopers testifying in the conto's hearings said they've been using yo Cal- for about five or six years. Their prime goal, they said, was to monitor the application, which allows real-time streaming of audio and sometimes video, to ensure officer sta- safety during drug buys. Some of the troopers testified that they didn't initially know that the application was recording, They only thought it was streaming, though it appeared that all eventually were made aware of the capacity during the investigation. Questions by defense lawyers and Lakanto during the hearing indicated that videos were also used for investigative purposes on Fitchburg drug investigations, and the judge asked troopers why they would need to record the operations if their prime goal was safety. Troopers questioned agreed that the undercover trooper who made the Fitchburg videos did not initially provide them to prosecutors and that law enforcement never mentioned the existence of the videos in their reports. Troopers, including a supervisor, told Lakanto and defense lawyers that different drug units had different practices on report writing and undercover work and gave answers to probing questions that the judge found lacking. Quote, it's shocking to me that these are the answers I'm getting, he said at one point when speaking to a state police lawyer about his ins- efforts to get answers to some questions he saw as basic regarding responsibility for turning over evidence. Quote, these are relatively simple tasks to complete, producing evidence, turning over evidence. It's very simple, Lakanto said. And no one's in charge and no one's responsible. Lakanto specifically homed in on the lack of mention of the recordings in police reports. Quote, you want me to believe that was accidental? he asked at one point of a state police lawyer. Who, who said that that was the judge's discretion to determine. Lakanto was sharply critical at times in his remarks about the state police, who told the judge that Interim State Police Colonel John Mon Jr., did not appear for a requested subpoena from defense lawyers because the department determined the subpoena was not legally valid. Quote, "'You can't ignore the summons because you don't think it's valid.'" lecanto said in the first hearing november 20th if you don't believe the summons is valued you come to the court quote, "rules applied to everyone" Close quote. mon has not testified in the case and later court proceedings show lecanto did not appear inc- did not appear inclined to believe his testimony was necessary Locanto did hear from a supervisor of the Fitchburg drug operation in question, retired Greg Defosses at a hearing january january seventeenth. Defosses testified he had told troopers involved in the probe they in the probe they needed to acquire warrants to record in the past, but that he wasn't familiar with the recording capabilities of Collio because he'd never received training on it. Defossi's acknowledged he had become aware of the recording capabilities during the investigation. However, when the undercover officer forwarded a photograph of the target to him and other troopers for investigative purposes, he testified he did not make further inquiries about the recordings or alert prosecutors about them, saying it was, quote, not my responsibility, close quote. He said multiple times under questioning that he was not a micromanager. At one point during questioning, Lakanto asked DeFosses, who served for more than 25 years, whether he knew if state police have a policy on whether troopers have an, quote, affirmative obligation to turn over evidence. Quote, to be honest with you, Your Honor, I don't know if it's specifically written in the policy. I'm not too good with policy and procedure, DeFoss retired. But I believe they would. there would be something that, yes, troopers are required to turn over evidence to the district attorney's office. Yes. DeFoss testified it was generally the responsibility of case officers, in this case Trooper Justin Bird, to transmit such information to pros- prosecutors. Bird, asked whether it was his training to wait to turn over evidence to prosecutors until asked for things specifically, replied, Typically, that way, typically, the way that I don't want to say trained, but culturally examined would be that I would wait until I was asked. Bird testified that while the undercover officer remains in the Calliope mentioned the Callio technology during briefings before, prior to operations. He didn't li- initially know it could record or was being recorded. Lakanto at one point noted that email records showed Bud and other troopers were sending photographs of people by the undercover officer asking who they were. The judge, in questioning Bird directly, asked how, other than secretly recording, he thought the undercover troopers could have attained photographs from his targets. Quote, you'll have to ask him that. I don't know, sir, Bird replied. Legondo then asked whether, in Bird's experience, a person selling drugs would be okay with someone taking out their cell phone and shooting a picture of them. No, Bird replied. Byrd ultimately agreed he should have known what to do once he was afi- aware of the recordings being made, but stressed that the state police gave him no training. As far as the video goes, I was completely ignorant to any policy, any training, any supervisory direction to what to do with this type of e- evidence, he testified. Documents obtained by the TNG show MON, June 29, 2023, promulgated a policy governing the use of, of covert audio recordings in the department. The policy states troopers will be, among other things, trained with the capabilities of the recording technologies they use, but will not initiate secret recordings without supervisory warning ab- absent emergency circumstances, secret obtain a warrant or prosecute, prosecutorial approval before making a secret recording, obtain written authorization from federal prosecution before making secret recordings in federal cases, and document the existence and supervisory approval of all secret recordings within a written investigatory report. In training documents obtained by the TNG regarding lessons learned from their investigation, state police found, quote, many troopers weren't aware of all the functions of the Kalyo suite of applications, that, quote, poor case management practices were employed by certain members, and there was a lack of understanding among several members members about the responsibility of an undercover or case officer Pertaining to evidence identification and production. Our final story today is a sports story entitled "NBA All-Star Weekend: Curry vs. UNESCO in Overdue Matchup." This is reported by Tim Reynolds for the Associated Press. She's the player with the best three-point contest performance in NBA or WNBA history. He's made more three-pointers than anyone who's ever played in the highest level. Sabrina Ionescu, Stephen Curry. She's one of his favorites and led the WNBA in three-pointers made last season. He's one of her idols and is the NBA's all-time three-point leader. And on Saturday night in Indianapolis at All-Star Weekend, They will go head-to-head in a three-point contest, Steph versus Sabrina, one that's already got both of them amped up for a competition on the global stage like none other between NBA and WNBA stars. Quote, it's going to be a great experience for us both, UNESCO said. Added Curry, quote, it's an authentic competition between two great shooters. It's not their first time facing off. The New York Liberty and Golden State War- Warrior stars have played horse against each other, and from the way they were telling the story on Tuesday night, it was clear that Unesco won that matchup. Their relationship goes wh- back well over a decade, and they've been in the stands to see each other play. Unesco is a kid from the Bay Area whose family had Warrior season tickets. Curry took his daughters to see Unescu play when she was at Oregon, facing Cal in 2020. Unescu talked to Curry's girls that night, and neither they nor their dad forgot that act of kindness. There is a clear, deep respect between the two. The winner on Saturday night gets bragging rights, but both of them know there's a far bigger prize than winning. Quote, I think a lot of people are either on one side or the other of their reactions. Like this dopest thing in the world, it's the first of its kind, and it'll be something that kind of changes the narrative of what it looks like, Curry said. But then also there's a camp that's like, oh, you've got a lot on the line. Do you really want to take on that challenge? What if you lose? There's a lot of, of fear attached to it, really, I guess. This is what sports is about. Here's how we got here. UNESCO put on a shooting show for all time in the WNBA's three-point contest last summer. She missed her first shot of that final round, then made her next 20, yes, 20, before missing again, and then she made her final five. The totals, 25 for 27 shooting from seven different three-point shots on the floor in 63 seconds. Ionescu posed for a photo imitating Curry's famous lights-out pose while holding her trophy at the WNBA event and raised the possibility of a matchup. She had just scored 37 shootout points. Curry's best in the NBA version of the three-point contest is 31. Then came last month when Curry was wired with a microphone for Golden State's game against Sacramento and had a discussion with Warriors teammate Brandon Podziemski about UNESCO. Quote, I think I've got to challenge her, Curry said, told Podziemski. UNESCO responded on social media. Let's get it. See you at the three-point line. And here we are. It's already sounding like this one will be the matchup maybe everybody wants to see on the All-Star stage. Sure, there's the game on Sunday night. There's Mac McClung trying to pre- defend his crown in the dunk contest on Saturday. There's Victor Wembanyama making his All-Star event debut in the Rising Star Games on Friday. Quote, we're really excited for the opportunity to do this, UNESCO said. From my perspective, it's something I could have never imagined being a part of. It's really organic, close quote. This one has a little bit of everything. A battle of the sexes field, two shooters with enormous respect from their peers, two players with enormous respect for each other. And yes, it seems like people will be choosing sides. Two incredible shooters, incredible players, really. I don't want to disrespect their craft. I know how much hard work they put in. Dallas guard Kyrie Irving said in a video posted on the NBA's social media channels. Quote, but that three-point line doesn't exist. They're all the way out to the four-point line, five-point line. But yeah, I'm pulling for Sabrina. No disrespect for, to you, Steph. I love you, big bro. But at the same time, she's got the record, man. She's coming to defend her title. You're coming to the competitive table to see if you can win. It's going to be interesting. Close quote added Phoenix forward Kevin Durant also to the NBA's social channels. Quote, I'm going, Steph. I'm going, Steph. Durant originally picked Curry, then decided he would back UNESCO, then changed his mind yet again. Both players will see their foundations get some cash from this. Curry's Eat, Learn, Play nonprofit and UNESCO's S120 Foundation, will receive a donation from the NBA and WNPA for participating. Every shot they make, $1,000 for regular threes, $2,000 for Moneyball threes, and $3,000 for deeper threes from nearly 30 feet, will bring a donation from State Farm to the NBA Foundation to, quote, support economic empowerment in the black community, the league said. Quote, she's the champ. I'm the contender, Curry said. Let's lay it on the line, close quote. That's all we've got time for today. This is Daphne. I have been reading the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, February the 15th. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the beauty that is outside. And if you like the snow, go play in it. And if you don't like the snow, just look at it and note that it's kind of pretty.